I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Anna Lemke. She is a professor of addiction medicine at Stanford University, program director of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship, and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She's a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, a diplomat of the American Board of Addiction Medicine, and the best-selling author of the books, Drug Dealer, MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, and also Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, which we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Anna, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So in these two books you have, there's kind of two separate focuses, right? Because there's um, there's the drugs, which provide pleasure and become addicting in that sense. And then there's more broadly dopamine, which can be drugs, but it can also be behavioral patterns of addiction, right? Yes, exactly. Um, where should we get started? Because if we're trying to look at a biological understanding of this, would it be best to understand how the drugs work and then go to the behavior? Or would it be best to start with behavior and then use the drugs as a lens into that? Hmm, good question. So, you know, whether the addiction is to a drug or to a behavior, I think that the changes that happen in the brain are the same. Mm -hmm. um, so in general, when I'm thinking about addiction, I lump it all together. Um, to me, the phenomenology of addiction to drugs is the same as the phenomenology of addiction to behaviors. And I infer from the science, such as it is, that the biological and physiological brain changes are also the same. Mm -hmm. So addiction, we've evolved to be at risk for this. Is it, is it really just having a good system, let's say a system that derives pleasure out of something that would be good for survival, like food or sex, but then it can go uh, haywire, essentially? Yeah, you know, I think, I think of all mental illness as a stress vulnerability diathesis, mm -hmm. which is to say, given enough stress, any of us will get crazy, right? And some people, even with a, an ideal environment, um, are prone to certain types of mental illness. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for addiction. So in a certain, we all are, have a basically the same reward pathway, which has been conserved over millions of years of evolution and across species. If you dissect the human brain and look at the reward pathway and compare it to that of a lizard, it's essentially identical. So it's an un, unchanged, highly conserved part, part of our brain which has us reflexively approaching pleasure and avoiding pain and which is kept, which has kept us alive uh, over millions of years of evolution in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. The problem we're facing now is that this ancient wiring is mismatched for the modern ecosystem of overabundance and the ways mm -hmm. in which almost every human behavior and substance has become drugified, distilled down to its most reinforcing parts. So, um, you know, it, it really is kind of this mismatch between what our brains were designed to do and the environment that we find ourselves living in. I, I generally think that people who we today diagnose with different forms of mental illness in a different environment might not be mentally ill, right? They mm -hmm. might be, they might be shamans or they might be those, for example, people with addiction might be the leaders of the tribe because they're willing to work harder and go further to find scarce resources. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I always like to look at, look at mental illness through, you know, it, I mean, we talk about the biopsychosocial model of, of mental disease. And I think that's a really good model uh -huh. because it acknowledges that it really is the interaction between our biology and the environment that uh, ends up determining whether or not somebody, uh, you know, is mentally ill. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of an earlier conversation I had with anthropologist Ed Hagen. Are you familiar with his work? No. He's made an interesting case that we evolved to use certain substances. Like he's looking at um, tobacco and uh, certain psychedelics as well, I believe, but basically making the case that the reason people use these and have been using them for thousands of years is because there's, even though they're poisons, uh, there's some adaptive utility to it. So in the case of tobacco, for example, it was something about the gut. It's, so it's like 
Mm. Even though it's poisonous for us, uh, maybe it's more poisonous for bad bacteria. So if we have just a little bit of it, it, it could be good for us in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the biology of evolution is characterized by the ways in which we more broadly can make peace with the toxins in our environment, and in some cases, ultimately imbibe or ingest or cohabitate with threats in the environment as a way to, to survive, you know, whether it's the bacteria li living commensally in our gut or, or what have you. But I guess, you know, just to push back a little bit on that notion vis-a-vis -vis tobacco, although there might've been some evolutionary utility with very modest amounts of like tobacco mm -hmm. leaves, you know, millions of years ago, what we're facing now is really a huge crisis of incompatibility and being seriously overwhelmed by the potency and abundance um, of uh, reinforcing drugs and behaviors mm -hmm. in our environment, which, which, I, which I think the data show is actually, you know, killing us. We are literally titillating ourselves mm -hmm. to death. I mean, the numbers, you know, the, the top three causes of death globally are caused by diseases related to modifiable risk factors. The top three being smoking, uh, poor diet and inactivity. Mm -hmm. So clearly we've reached some kind of tipping point, you know, in our evolution where um, not only do we have everything we need to survive, we have too much of those things and especially um, kind of potent, too, too many potent drugs. Would it be right to conceptualize it as an internal battle between the more ancient lizard parts of the brain against like our rational brain that knows this stuff isn't good for us, but maybe it's still hard to fight those, those more ancient and powerful brain circuits? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. You've got these highly conserved primitive circuits that were once adaptive and no longer are. But I guess I wouldn't juxtapose necessarily like our reasoning brain against our limbic brain. I would mm -hmm. think about the ways in which each one informs the other. And I think at every turn, our hope for ongoing survival and, sol and problem solving is not like our rational brain figuring it out, but actually our rational brain opening up to our emotion brain and letting those different parts of ourselves together um, figure out what, you know, what the solution will be. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could talk a bit about what dopamine is from the ground up and how, how it should work in terms of like providing pleasure for things that we want to have. And then also how it can go, um, haywire when, when it comes to drugs of abuse? Sure. So dopamine is a chemical that we make in our brain. Um, if you were to give you know, me a spoonful of dopamine and I swallowed it, it would do nothing at all because dopamine itself does not pass the blood brain barrier. The precursor L-dopa is what we give people to sort of enhance dopamine, for example, in the treatment of Parkinson's disease. But interestingly, it doesn't uh, give people a high However, the dopamine that we make in our brain uh, that responds to other things we ingest and things we do um, does lead to the release of dopamine as a neurotransmitter in that specific reward circuit that consists broadly of the nucleus accumbens, the ventral tegmental area, and the prefrontal cortex. Dopamine is essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It's not the only chemical in our brain involved in that process but it is the final common pathway for all reinforcing substances and behaviors. When we do something or ingest something that's reinforcing, it, it releases dopamine in that pathway. The more dopamine it releases and the faster it releases dopamine, the more potentially reinforcing or addictive um, it is. But uh, in order to understand the, the addicted brain, you really need to understand you know, how the brain then compensates for any, any intoxicant that releases much more dopamine all at once than our brains were really evolved for. Mm -hmm. And is that specifically talking about drugs of abuse or is it also like if you eat like a whole candy bar, let's say, and you get a massive sugar rush, is that also a dopamine spike that your brain would have to adjust for? Yes, absolutely. So dopamine is not just released in response to intoxicants, it's released in response to music, it's released in response to sex, it's released in response to learning, um, meditation, prayer has been shown to increase dopamine levels. So there are all kinds of behaviors that, that increase dopamine. But 
the, what distinguishes between those different types of behaviors is how much dopamine, how quickly it releases dopamine, and also whether the dopamine is in response to work uh, that's done a priori as a way to get to that dopamine release, or whether the, the drug itself instantly releases dopamine with minimal effort. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's the there's like the consumatory reward versus the chasing the reward. And I've heard arguments that we aren't really hardwired to feel good about actually having things, but we're, we feel good about sort of the path to getting things. Well, it's a little bit of both. So there's a very famous experiment um, in which rats were bioengineered to not have dopamine transmission in their reward pathway. And what the scientists mm-hmm. discovered is that when they put food in the rat's mouth, it ate the food and seemed to get pleasure from the food. But when they put the food, even a body length away, the rat would starve to death. In other words, the absence of dopamine dopamine was also the absence of motivation to do the work, to get the reward. But there was still somehow pleasure or ability to ingest. Not that it's not that it's easy uh-huh. to, to tell how, how much pleasure a, a mouse or a rat is in when it's eating. But anyway, that's kind of mm-hmm. the theory. Um, so, so dopamine is important for both. It is important for the high that we get. We do get an actual high when dopamine is released, but it's also really important to motivation. But there the story is a little bit trickier because mm-hmm. the motivation is really strongly related to a combination of the memory of uh, a prior experience of euphoria or pleasure um, combined with the relative dopamine compared to baseline tonic levels of dopamine. So we're already all, we're always releasing dopamine at baseline tonic levels. Uh-huh. So it really depends where our dopamine levels are in relation to that baseline. Mm-hmm. So is it healthier to have a lower baseline or is are there any benefits to doing activities that might raise that? Um, so, I mean, I, what I would say is that basically if you have a baseline tonic level of dopamine firing, that's a little bit higher, let's say that's advantageous, um, because, uh, theoretically, you know, you are then sort of a a happier person. There Uh are data suggesting that people who are depressed or people who are prone to addiction have lower baseline levels of dopamine. That's interesting. I would have thought it might have been the opposite because let's say if you're you have a high baseline, you might feel the need to chase uh, high hits of dopamine. And maybe if your baseline is lower, then you'd feel more satisfied from simpler pleasures. Yeah. So I think this gets down back to what I talk about as the pleasure pain balance and mm-hmm. kind of where where your pleasure pleasure pain balance um, ends up in the resting position, or essentially what your homeostasis is, because all living organisms will work very hard to restore homeostasis. That is basically your your resting state. So what it means is that you know at your baseline resting state, if you're in a dopamine deficit state at at your baseline, or if you have less dopamine, you might be more likely to be willing to do the work to bring those baseline uh, levels of dopamine up. Mm -hmm. I've heard of some psychological research showing that um, people seek an optimal level of risk. So for example, if you're doing some activity uh, like rock climbing, where there are safety features added, um, people start to take more risks. So the safety features aren't necessarily saving people from harm because as soon as they have those additional safety features, they take additional risks that they otherwise wouldn't have. So it's, it's seeking homeostasis, but not necessarily just in this positive way. So do we, do we do that um, with drugs as well? Like, is that part of it when, when we live in a place where there's so much abundance? Is that one of the ways to, to compensate by seeking out additional stress? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a complicated question. So when I, I agree that there's evidence that shows, um, including with like risky types of drug taking, um, that if there are sort of, if there's a safety net to catch people, they might be more willing to engage in riskier use. But that's, I, I think that's a little bit different from what we're mm-hmm. talking about in terms of talking about dopamine and sort of the drive that gets us repeating that behavior or for that matter, what happens in the brain when, when people become addicted? I think those are related, but but not exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe I'm I'm 
tangling up uh, the, the different messages of, of your two books a little bit too much. So on one hand, we have a public health crisis, uh, the opioid e epidemic, as well as uh, other problems of drug use, which seems to be like, seems to place less fault on individuals and more on our healthcare system, for example. Then on the other hand, you have um, I, what I think the, the argument you're making in the, in the dopamine nation is more focused on the individual of like, um, we need to become more self-disciplined and uh, not chase these pleasures that actually make us feel worse in the long run. Well, um, I guess sort of. I mean, I think what both books are um, are referencing a serious public health crisis, mm -hmm. which is the problem of access. Um, access is one of the biggest risk factors for developing addiction. If you live in a neighborhood where drugs are freely available, you're more likely to try them and more likely to get addicted. If you go to a mm -hmm. doctor who, who's free with their prescription pad, prescribing opioids and benzos and stimulants, you're more likely to be exposed to those drugs and more likely to get addicted. Um, so both books are essentially about the problem of access. The first book is about the opioid epidemic, mm -hmm. which was caused by in increased access to opioids because doctors began prescribing for minor and chronic pain conditions instead of reserving opioids for, um, you know, serious trauma, serious surgery and end of life care. Um, and the other thing that, that was very salient about and continues to be salient about the opioid epidemic was the observation that uh, people with chronic pain uh, who were taking opioids daily, particularly at high doses, were actually ending up in more pain so that was very paradoxical. How is it that this, this medication or this substance that was meant to help people with pain ended up putting them into more pain? And the answer is because of neuroadaptation, the whole phenomenon of opioid-induced hyperalgesia speaks to how our brains are actually changed by exposure to reinforcing drugs, which ends up resetting our hedonic or joy set point so that then we need more of the drug over time to get the same effect. And when we're not using it, we are in withdrawal and the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, craving, and in some cases, physical pain. Mm -hmm. um, dopamine nation basically widens the lens on the opioid crisis and says, hey, it's not just opioids that are widely available and have become more potent and cheaper um, and which paradoxically cause pain if taken regularly over time. It's all kinds of substances and behaviors that characterize our modern world, whether it's the smartphone that we grab first thing in the morning or our you know, morning cup of joe or uh, the sugary, fatty, sweet foods we eat throughout the day, or the Netflix binge, or our you know romance novel reading addiction, which I talk about in the book in my own case, mm -hmm. or the, the chess playing addiction. So the point being that a, a lot, if not all of human activity has now through capitalism, technology, innovation, essentially been distilled down to its addictive essentials. Mm -hmm. making all of us more vulnerable to the risk of addiction in modern life. As I like to say, mm -hmm. if you're, if you're not addicted yet, it's coming to a website near you. So, so <laughs> that's, that's really the, the, that's the way in which those books for me are intellectually mm -hmm. linked and actually with the one kind of leads to the other, um, this idea that four factors that make something addictive in the modern world are quantity, uh, access, potency and novelty. And what we have with almost every drug is incredibly abundant quantity. TikTok, for example, never runs out. We have 24 seven access with our smartphones being an example of, of, of like the modern hypodermic syringe where uh, we can just mm -hmm. download this digital content running for the bus, so to speak. We've got novelty where, you know, these AI algorithms figure out what we like and then suggest something that's very similar, but it's got a little bit of novelty to keep us engaged in chasing that, you know, next dopamine hit. Uh, and then you've got potency. And that's really um, one of the huge factors. Almost every kind of reinforcer that you look at is now 10, 50, a hundred times more potent than it was even 50 years ago. And all of those things contribute to 
the neuroadaptive brain changes that make people addicted. Mm -hmm. Are there differences between children and adults uh, nowadays? Like, let's say uh, your average adult might not have been raised with a smartphone, for example. So they're addicted to it at some level, but maybe their brain wasn't shaped by it. Compare that to children who are growing up with screens uh, and perhaps even having lower attention spans and being more used to this sort of impulsive reward. Well, there's no different, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind, just through simple observation that the younger generation brain is different from people exposed to technology later. And you can just see that by the, through the observation of the facility that young people have with technology and the way that they're able to navigate it compared to older people. Mm -hmm. But whether or not, you know, young people are more addicted than old people, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think, you know, intuition would suggest that, yes, they are. On the other hand, uh, you could argue that maybe it is really young people that will figure out much sooner than older people the ways in which they need to incorporate and adapt to the technology, kind of akin to this idea that um, the way that we evolve is by identifying dangers or toxins in the environment and then somehow ingesting them or incorporating them in mm -hmm. a way that's adaptive. I would also, you know, another counter argument to this idea that young people are more addicted than older people is that I'm seeing lots and lots of older people and retired people who seem to be more and more addicted mm -hmm. um, to technology, to cannabis, which is not the cannabis of yesteryear, to alcohol. So people are living longer. And I'm seeing clinically a lot of folks who have been using substances mostly in moderation through mm -hmm. their young adult and middle years and then get into their older years and then lose the capacity to, to use in, in moderation, probably because mm -hmm. just like any other organ, their brains are aging and what they could control or manage um, or you know put the brakes on earlier in their lives, they no longer can, combined with the problem of increased potency. And, and now you've got an incubator for addiction in the older generation, which we are seeing. Wow. Well, in the younger generation, at least, that's a pretty optimistic take that since we're being raised around this technology, maybe we can adapt to it earlier. Well, yeah. And I, you know, I think it's, I think it's, we can be optimistic. I mean, we're, we're sort of these incredible problem solvers. The fact that we're talking about the dark side of the technology is, I think, a place to start. So that's good. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm seeing more and more young people also who are acknowledging that the technology is problematic in ways and who are trying to figure out how to, you know, develop healthier relationships. I mean, I see that everywhere. Um, it's not to say that we've figured figured out the problem, but just the, the fact that we're, we're experimenting with various solutions, I think is a good sign. So oftentimes if someone does a social media detox or perhaps they eliminate all sugar for a few weeks or something like that, you'll hear them say, it was great. I felt so much better. And then they returned to exactly what they were doing before they felt better. So why, why is that so hard to, to make a massive switch like that, even if we have the evidence of it feels better? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And we're all vulnerable to that. Um, and what, what I, so I talk about this pleasure pain balance and how pain and pleasure are co-located in the brain and work like opposite sides of a balance and essentially the way that the balance restores homeostasis or a level balance is first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. And I use the metaphor of gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance after a deviation to pleasure, but they like it on the balance um, and they don't get off right when it's level, they stay on until the balance is tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the after effect or what we call neuroadaptation. If we wait long enough, the gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored, but those gremlins never actually go away. So once they've been created in response to a stimulus, they're sort of always there. It's like there's a kind of a permanent uh, psychic scar or neurological echo for that experience. And we have these really an incredible memory for highly reinforcing as well as highly painful behaviors and experiences. What we don't have a good memory for is the gremlins or the opponent process mechanism, the after effect. So for example, a lot of patients who are addicted to a variety of intoxicants will be able to vividly recall their first exposure to alcohol, but it's very, very hard to recall all the downstream negative consequences of that. 
same thing with social media. People can really, really remember how good it feels to, you know, engage in social media, but don't remember very well, um, you know, all the, the sort of negative stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. So, um, and the same thing with painful stimuli, like we have this incredibly vivid, I, I have a very vivid memory for how much I hate to run and how much it hurts, but I always forget from one day to the next that runner's high that comes afterwards. So this opponent process mechanism or the way in which a pleasure and pain counterbalance each other is something that we don't have a good memory for, which mm-hmm. is why it's so important for us to talk about these experiences. Cause one of the ways we make up for that memory deficit is the narratives that we tell about um, the consequences. Since we ourselves have difficulty seeing true cause and effect, um, the stories that we then tell ourselves and tell each other about the causes of our use of intoxicants, for example, can have a very um, potent and powerful impact on our future use. What causes the individual differences in, in how likely we are to get hooked on something, whether that's like someone who runs for the first time and feels great and gets hooked on it, and then other people will just hate it and never want to do it again, or with alcohol, most people, it seems like, can handle it in moderation at one extreme Um, some people might be very prone to addiction on another extreme. Some people won't want to touch it at all. Yeah. So those inter-individual differences are really important to acknowledge. There's actually remarkably little science looking at those differences, but I mean, you could speculate that from an evolutionary perspective, you wouldn't want everybody in the tribe working for the same berry bush, right? You'd want some people Mm -hmm. really interested in uh, you know, in bison, other people interested in finding mates, other people interested in finding water so that collectively together, um, you know, we get everything that the tribe needs. And so I suspect that's at play there, that those built in individual differences kind of ensure that as a group, there's evolutionary adaptability, but in terms of like the actual sort of bi- brain biology or physiology behind those preferences, we, we really, uh, we don't have very much science there. Right, because it's hard to tell how much of um, these public health crises, uh, crises are a result of self-selection or if it's, if it's like you view people as a blank slate and then add, add additional environmental stress and then a certain amount of people um, will fall victim to, to different pathologies. Well, I mean, l- let me say that there is evidence that people have variable uh, vulnerability to the problem of addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And that part of the risk of becoming addicted is innate or inherited. So for example, there are family studies showing that if you are the son of an alcoholic, you are at increased risk compared to the general population of yourself becoming an alcoholic, even if from birth, Mm -hmm. you are removed from that environment and raised in an environment with a lot of pro-social anti-addiction types of, of factors. So there's definitely, you know, an inherited complex polygenic vulnerability to addiction, having to do with a combination of impulsivity, ability to delay gratification, um, emotion regulation, all these kinds of more enduring traits. Um, so those, the, those, those are sort of innate, you know, innate differences. But again, I would just emphasize that you've got this stress vulnerability diathesis and even somebody with a lot of innate vulnerability for addiction, if they're living in the right kind of environment, um, you know, their chances of getting addicted to something really go down. Whereas if you've got even somebody without much innate vulnerability to addiction, who's living in a very addictogenic world, like the world that we live in today, that person, uh, their risk of getting addicted goes way up. And that's kind of the point of dopamine nation that we've essentially all become vulnerable to that problem. Mm-hmm. Now, is it true that you always have to replace one addiction with another? Like, for example, if you're trying to quit smoking, maybe you become a habitual bubblegum chewer. So you still you still need the stimulus, but you just replace it with a healthier one. Or can you just get rid of it completely? Right. Well, that I mean, that's so that's the work really of recovery is trying not to just replace one thing with another one addiction with another really the work of recovery is trying to learn to just sit in the quiet and tolerate discomfort, uh, tolerate uh, boredom, tolerate uncertainty, and not try to uh, run away from those feelings or find some other replacement escape 
while also, you know, being in uh, preserving the humility because that, that we all experience in the face of doing that, because we're natural strivers. We like to, you know, um, have sort of an impact on our environment. It's very difficult to do that, especially in a world that's constantly inviting you to consume. Mm -hmm. So, um, a real risk of giving up one substance is switching uh, to another or cross addiction. And this is, this is probably again, a biological phenomenon where once we've been addicted to one thing, we are at increased risk of getting addicted to something else. We see this, not just clinically, but also in animal studies showing, for example, if you get a rat addicted to cocaine, um, which means that you get, you get that rat to a point where it will press a lever for cocaine until exhaustion or until it dies. And then you remove all cocaine from that rat's environment for a year, which is a rat lifetime. And then you expose that same rat to cannabis or some other intoxicant that rat will get addicted to the second intoxicant much more quickly and much more easily than a rat who had never been exposed to intoxic to any intoxicant at all. So, so there is some kind of permanent latent brain change change that likes likely happens once people develop a severe addiction that then makes them more vulnerable to future addictions. Um, but, but again, the idea of recovery is that we are trying to find a way of interacting in the world that is not a part of uh, this kind of hedonic treadmill or, you know, dopamine vortex that we need to try to avoid. Can you become addicted to something positive like exercise or does it work differently when you're just building habits from, from a neurological perspective? The answer is yes. Um, so it does work differently in that, um, the way, what, what, do, what exercise does is it allows us to get our dopamine indirectly by paying for it up front, um, mm -hmm. through the science of hormesis. Hormesis is Greek for to set in motion. And it's the whole study of the way in which mild to moderate doses of toxic stimuli or toxic exposure to toxic substances, um, actually upregulates our own body's healing mechanism. So what happened and, and, and evidence and exercise is actually toxic to cells. So what happens when we expose ourselves to exercise is we actually trigger the body to sense injury and then to start to make more dopamine and other feel good hormones and neurotransmitters, um, which is very different. And by the way, the, the data show that what happens with exercise is that dopamine levels rise slowly in the latter half of exercise, but then remain elevated for hours afterwards before mm -hmm. going down to baseline levels, which is very different from what intoxicants do, where you get a sudden spike immediately of dopamine followed very quickly by dopamine free fall, not just to baseline levels, but below baseline levels to this dopamine deficit state before, after a period of time going back to baseline, but with repeated exposure to intoxicants, that initial spike in dopamine is less, but that, mm -hmm. that dopamine free fall or dopamine deficit state goes lower and lower and lower. And eventually you end up stuck down in that dopamine deficit state. That's the addicted brain. Mm -hmm. So doing things like exercise, ice cold water baths, cleaning out your closet, et cetera, all those effortful things that give us a reward after the activity is done are healthier ways of getting dopamine because they're less vulnerable to the problem of addiction, tolerance, dependence, and withdrawal, mm -hmm. but they're not completely invulnerable to that problem. So yes, you can get addicted to exercise. I have mm -hmm. had patients addicted to exercise. It's a kind of rare type of person or rarer type of person for whom that happens, but absolutely you can get addicted to pain in various forms. So when you get sore, it, there's pain, but there's also some something that feels good about it compare that to a bruise where it's like all pain. What is that something good that lingers for days after with soreness? Well, you know, with any kind of physical injury, again, is the, 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 the body senses that there's been some kind of dangerous situation requiring this upregulation of feel good hormones mm -hmm. and neurotransmitters to protect the organism. Um, there is always going to be, I mean, not always, but there, there is going to be, you know, some longer term injury, the soreness that you feel in your muscles though, that's part of, um, getting stronger is different because 
what you're doing there is you're, you know, you're kind of like changing the strength set point of your muscles as opposed mm -hmm. to actually causing injury to the organism, which then requires tissue repair work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it's like folk physiology, but I was, I was finding myself, if I stub my toe and have a bruise or something, wishing that I could add the, the positive uh, chemicals that you get when, when it's uh, from muscle soreness or muscle growth. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a great quote by, by Plato, um, who observed thousands of years ago that very often in the wake of a physical illness of some sort, people will have this kind of euphoria or this mood bump. So mm -hmm. e even when, it, you know, if people are experiencing some severe sickness or injury and it resolves, there very often is this uh, kind of positive um, response as the, as which is probably very much triggered by by this upregulation of, of dopamine and other, mm -hmm. other neurotransmitters, serotonin, norepinephrine, endogenous mm -hmm. opioids or endogenous cannabinoids. So earlier you gave two interesting examples that I wouldn't have thought fell into the same category. You said cleaning your closet and taking an ice bath. So the, the positive emotion from the closet makes sense to me because suddenly your environment is different. So I, I wouldn't have attributed it to the action so much as the environment. But then let's say you go in the ice bath, you feel better, even though nothing's technically changed, like you get out of the bath and theoretically it would have been the same as if you got out of a hot bath, but with the hot bath, you wouldn't have the positive emotion change, right? I don't know. I mean, you could theoretically use a hot temperature. There's more evidence for freezing temperatures in terms of enhancing dopamine levels. For example, mm -hmm. there's a study out of Europe showing that if you immerse adult males in, you know, freezing water for an hour again, and you track their dopamine levels, there's a gradual increase over the latter half of the ice bath. And then those levels stay elevated for hours afterwards. I don't know of anybody who's done a study um, of people cleaning out their closet and dopamine levels. Um, and maybe it does work differently, but I guess my point is that, um, you know, whether it's a physical stimulus, an actual literal physical pain that we expose ourselves to, mm -hmm. or if it's the, the, uh, more of a mental, um, challenge, right. Where uh -huh. it's sort of this sort of effortful engagement. It's not the immediate reward of eating a chocolate donut. It's the delayed reward, um, after we have done something hard. And that's essentially kind of what I'm getting at. Is it also dopamine that motivates that feeling of more long-term achievement if, if you do something difficult or is that a, a different system? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think it's all the same system, right? Mm -hmm. um, so for example, there's a, there's a very interesting experiment showing that if you expose uh, a, a rat to a very complex maze of shoots and ladders and running wheels and sawdust and <clears throat> all kinds of interesting things, and then you slice open that rat's brain, you will see the same kind of arborization of dopamine releasing neurons in the reward pathway as you see when you expose that rat to something like methamphetamine, which is a very potent addictive drug. So in other words, learning, right? Learning a new environment, a new complex environment releases dopamine and is rewarding. Mm -hmm. um, now, interestingly though, if you pre-medicate that rat with methamphetamine and then expose the rat to that complex environment, there's no additional arborization beyond the initial arborization, which suggests that exposure to drug may in fact usurp or inhibit our ability to learn from env our environment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that the, somehow the potency and immediacy of addictive drugs like methamphetamine kind of erase our ability to have dopamine enhancement from natural rewards, like, like learning a new environment. Mm -hmm. So there is something fundamentally different between intoxicants, which again, I think, I think the difference is that, um, you know, there's a, first of all, the, it's the amount of dopamine that's released in the reward, but is far greater than with mm -hmm. the more modest rewards, uh, now what we call natural rewards. Um, but also you get this tremendous dopamine deficit state, you know, you pay for it afterwards, uh, which mm -hmm. is, which is different, um, from, um, you know, the kinds of rewards that you get that involve, first of all, just plain old locomotion, like moving your body, uh, in order to get the reward, not to mention the, the mental and cognitive load. Mm -hmm. I've heard at a basic level 
that dopamine is pleasure and serotonin is meaning. So uh, is is there any merit to that? Or is serotonin like governing separate forms of pleasure? Um, you know, I, so again, I, I think one of the reasons that both in my book, I kind of distill it down to this metaphor of pleasure and pain, which are co-located in the brain, is so that people can have some um, understanding of some of the fundamental rules that drive the physiology, but obviously it's an oversimplification. And that's also true. I think we can't attribute, you know, one experience to one neurotransmitter. I, I don't think I would say that serotonin is meaning generally when people take or ingest something that releases a lot of serotonin, what they feel very often is connection to other humans. So there's something certainly very affiliative um, about serotonin, which is not true for dopamine. So for example, there was a very interesting experiment published a couple of years ago, showing that if you put a rat in a cage in which another rat is trapped in a plastic jar, the rat who is free will work very hard to free the rat who is caged. But if mm -hmm. you then pre-medicate the free rat with opioids, and put it in the cage with the trap rat, it will not do any work to release, um, yeah. you know, that trapped rat. So, so there is something about dopamine, which is actually kind of anti-affiliative or sort of almost, um, usurps our, our tendency to want to, you know, affiliate with others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sometimes when you feel better, you feel more motivated to help others. Then it seems like in this case, the rat is like, uh, maybe he's trying to free the friend to, to play or something, but if, if the dopamine levels are high, maybe there's no desire to do that. That's right. Like the dopamine sort of becomes a replacement for, um, some of our fundamental, you know, affiliative needs. And I think this is also, you know, frankly, a worry with these digital drugs that in a sense, we're now able to meet so many of our basic needs just with this device that we're not putting in the work to kind of connect with others in real life. That's certainly a concern that I have. Mm -hmm. So when people are taking drugs like antidepressants, it's not raising their baseline dopamine levels, right? It's doing something else. Well, it depends on the antidepressant, um, you know, because they work in, in different ways. The, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors increase the amount of serotonin in the synapse, um, but antidepressants like well, Wellbutrin actually, we don't know exactly how they work. They probably lead to an increase in, in dopamine in the synapse. These are very, you know, mild increases. Uh, um, and so, you know, in that way they are affecting our, our mood. I guess the question is, do, you know, do we actually adapt to the presence of those drugs just like we would adapt to intoxicants? And over time, are we resetting our pleasure set point. There is some evidence to suggest that first of all, you have like Prozac poop out where it stops working. You do have, uh, the, um, kind of a withdrawal syndrome. Well, for some people, if I, actually, I will say for some people, they can have a very significant withdrawal syndrome with some antidepressants. Um, and there's even some, some data suggesting that people who take antidepressants for long periods of time, that, that it can actually make them more depressed over time. This, again, this idea that that we adapt to whatever the drug is. And if it's a drug that's, you know, releasing dopamine or pressing on the pleasure side of the balance, that ultimately what that may do is reset our joy set point lower ultimately than whatever our baseline was. So let's say you have someone having a very bad time. They live <clears throat> in a rough environment. They're not healthy. They're unemployed. They're depressed. And you could, you could, take two perspectives on it. On one hand, you could say something like they're depressed and this is trapping them in this cycle. So we need to medicate them and help them give them a boost to get out. On the other hand, you could say something like it makes perfect sense that they feel depressed because like for evolutionary reasons, they're perceptive of being in a bad environment. So who wants to feel good when you're in a bad environment? Um, so which, which approach do you take there? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the, the latter is, you know, that's the whole opium of the masses idea of this mm -hmm. idea that, you know, on, on one, on one level, we're using these psychotropics 
to pacify large groups of people who really should be rising up and protesting their circumstances, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, circumstances which wouldn't be healthy for anybody. And I think that's real and true. So if you look, uh, if you look at the epidemiologic data on psychotropics, uh, whether you're looking at prescribing patterns or the amount of psychotropic chemicals found in, uh, you know, human wastewater, what you find is that the poorest people in the world are taking the most psychotropics that is they're being prescribed the most psychotropics. And mm -hmm. that's, I think, alarming, right. That we have a situation where, um, you know, we're, we're actually drugging people into a kind of passivity, vis-a-vis uh, -vis their circumstances. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I am very grateful for the antidepressants and other psychotropics that we have. I think for people with severe mental illness, um, you know, no matter their demographic or socioeconomic circumstance, these medications can be absolute lifesavers. So it's not, you know, I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I just think it is important to recognize the ways in which we are overprescribing and using um, psychotropics, not just to treat severe mental illness, but also as a kind of social control mechanism. Is it the initial prescription that's a bigger problem or is it sustained chronic use of something that might be better used as like a temporary boost? Both, um, both. So we, we initiate psychotropics when we shouldn't and we certainly maintain them for much longer um, and at higher doses in many instances than, than we should. So you talk about trying to biologize problems, like these are, are more broadly social problems um, that probably need something other than drugs to fix. What is the incentive for, uh, for prescribing to, in order to fix these problems? Why do doctors not view it uh, as something to be, to be left alone? Well, I mean, the, the basic trend over the last 100 years or so, 150 years in almost all secular societies, which most of us are now in secular societies, is to medicalize social problems. I mean, medicine has become the umbrella on, under which almost all social problems are addressed. And in order to make that internally consistent and logical, what we have to do is call things diseases that we didn't used to call diseases. Um, because in order to justify, you know, a medical intervention, it has to be a disease. So then you have the diseaseification of everyday life. Um, you have people actually identifying with their disease um, and incorporating that as part of, you know, how they move through the world. Uh, so, so that's sort of, you know, how we roll now. I do think it's important to recognize that there are definite downsides of that. For example, the overprescribing of psychotropics as well as other medications. Um, and, you know, the, the, the cost is enormous. So, you know, uh, when we medicalize things and we bring them into the huge bureaucracy um, of medicine, it's also a potentially much more expensive way to address social problems. But that is, mm -hmm. that is our social safety net now. So is it more like treating symptoms rather than treating a root cause? Well, it's probably even worse than just treating symptoms. It, it's actually... Um, you know, giving, um, it's, it's, it's ignoring the, the, the social context and the environmental and sociologic causes, and then, um, sort of biologizing or creating a biological justification for something that, that, I mean, unless you're a complete reductionist and you think everything at the end of the day is just biology or, you know, chemical soup, um, you know, you're, you're basically creating diseases uh, that don't really exist to, to justify mm -hmm. medical intervention. So I know you're not a policymaker, but uh, what, what would you do about this, whether on the maybe the, the regulating drug side of things or on the more like a, addressing these sort of root sociological issues? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I think since we are living in an age where medicine has become the social safety net and the way to address uh, social issues. What we need to do is make sure that doctors have the time and the tools to address those actual issues and not just prescribe a pill as a short-term fix, which ultimately leads to, in my opinion, more problems in many cases. Mm -hmm. So that means really um, incentivizing and reinforcing things like psychoeducation, you know, preventive medicine, psychotherapy, 
um, all the kinds of all the kinds of habit change and, and environmental change, which we know are so important for wellness, instead of mm-hmm. again just like being like, well, let's do a procedure or let's prescribe a pill, which is of course how how people make money in medicine, but not necessarily how people get well. Is is it a manpower issue? Like, are there enough doctors to give people the care um, that they truly need? Oh yeah, I think there are enough doctors. The problem is that the system doesn't really incentivize the right kinds of interventions. The system pays for prescribing pills, doing procedures, short-term, you know, quick fixes. The, the system is not built for the kind of slow medicine and preventive medicine that will really get people well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in the long term, we need these sort of medical uh, structural changes. Uh, what can everyday people do to? better survive in the dopamine nation? Great question. I mean, um, as I talk about in the book, I think it starts with um, abstaining uh, from our drug of choice for long enough to reset homeostasis and to reset baseline reward pathways. How long is that? So typically once you've been addicted in my clinical experience and also supported by some, some of the science is that it takes 30 days to reset reward pathways, but really any amount of time that you can take away from your drug, including your device, even if it's just 24 hours of not even touching your phone is a good experiment to do. And then, you know, when we uh, decide, if we decide to go back to using our drug, whatever it is. Uh, we have to really be very intentional about how and when and where and how much. And we need, need to use self-binding strategies where we put literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice to enhance our ability to limit our consumption. Um, you know, you can't just go be like, oh, well, now I'm going to go back and not think about how you're going to do it. You have to be really, really thoughtful, put these barriers in place, um, hold yourself accountable, be accountable to others notice red flags when you start slipping again, because ultimately what happens when people do this abstinence trial dopamine fast, as you talked about, they feel a lot better, right? And they say, I do feel better, but I still want to go back to using that drug. So then, then we have to be really thoughtful. Okay. What, what is that exactly going to look like? Right. Is it what days of the week, you know, how much who are you going to use with, um, when are you absolutely not going to use so that people can try to find that balance. Most of my patients with severe addiction find that they're actually not able to moderate and that they repeatedly slip back into kind of either binge use or daily heavy use. So ultimately most of them will settle for abstinence. And so I think also creating a culture and an etiquette and a movement around abstinence as a a good and viable um, life choice is a really important way to go. And then of course, the other thing I talk about in the book is that in those, you know, learning to kind of sit with the pain and tolerate it and not constantly look for distractions and even intentionally doing painful things as an indirect, indirect way of getting that dopamine fix. Anna, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, it was my pleasure.